Support for Quality of Life comes from the James Irvine Foundation, Kaiser Permanente, and the California Healthcare Foundation, ideas and innovations to improve healthcare for all Californians, on the web at chcf.org. Now it's time for Quality of Life, Valley Public Radio's look at the people and the issues affecting the way we live in the San Joaquin Valley. Here's your moderator, Terry Phillips. Thank you very much. Let me ask you a question. What do you believe? Whether you call it religion, philosophy, spirituality, or something else, everyone believes something, even if that something is really nothing. We all know about the world's major monotheistic faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, but what else is out there? I've invited some experts to share their different views about life, death, God, and a lot of other big questions. It promises to be a provocative hour. As always, I hope we'll all learn something and maybe have a little fun, too. So please stay tuned as we go in search of the meaning of, well, everything this morning on Quality of Life. First, a quick word about next week's program. Earlier this year, we did a program about the Central Valley's water problems. Our conversation covered everything from the ongoing drought crisis to some suggested conservation measures. At the end of that hour, it was pretty clear that we needed to revisit the topic. We will do that one week from today. Now, let's get on with today's program. And we begin talking about, uh, I guess it's proper to call it a belief system rather than, or perhaps a way of life rather than a religion. I'm speaking about Buddhism. And on the telephone with me is Reverend Kurt Rye of the Fresno Buddhist Temple. Reverend Rye, good morning and welcome to Quality of Life. Good morning. Thank you. And do I have that right? Is it, is it inaccurate to call Buddhism a religion? Well, I believe that's a, a question a lot of people have about Buddhism. They tend to think of it as more as a philosophy. And I, in my studies when I was at the seminary, one of the things that really rung true for me is they said that the difference between a religion and a philosophy is that the teaching is something that is not man-made or created. It's a true essence of spirituality. And so in that sense, I think Buddhism is a religion. And the fact that the historical Buddha did not create Buddhism, he just discovered the, the essential real teachings of the universe. So to that extent, anyway, perhaps you might say there is a parallel between Buddhism and Christianity. Yes, yes, definitely. So let me step back uh, about, I don't know, uh, a thousand years, <laughs> okay, <laughs> and and ask you to talk just a bit about the origins of Buddhism. Where did it start, and what does it mean? Okay, well, it's very interesting because Buddhism is one of the older religions. Uh, Twenty five hundred years ago in India, or what is now India, there was a man that actually became enlightened, and he is named is Shakyamuni Buddha, and it's an interesting paradigm, because the idea is, is that the, anybody can become enlightened. And so this person, Shakyamuni Buddha, was the first person to discover what I was mentioning earlier, a universal truth that could be followed. And when he came out of his state of enlightenment, he, did, he thought that no one could comprehend what he had experienced, and his disciples asked him to teach. And so from 2,500 years ago, he lived for 84 years. He walked across what was now Nepal and India and was teaching. And then his monks continued on after his death. So the religion started actually with a human person, historical person. And then as Buddhism spread across India, it took on different characteristics. As time went on, people interpreted the teachings differently. And then it went through Southeast Asia, went over and through China, into Japan, and into Korea. And, and so that spread took about a thousand years after the death of the Buddha. Can you talk about some of the similarities and differences between Buddhism and the three major monotheistic religions? Well, I would say the first idea is that uh, in Buddhism we talk about non-duality. That's one of the main teachings. And in, simply put, it means that our human mind likes to divide things up. You know, it's right or left, up or down, black or white, good or bad. And as you can see, as the progression goes on, then our mind tends to taint what's actually there. We say, oh, that's a bad person, or that's an old ugly car, and in fact, it's just a person and it's just a car. So in a sense, Buddhism focuses on how we interrelate with each other and the world as opposed to focusing on a deity or a supreme being. That is one of the major differences, I would say, between Buddhism and the theistic religions is that we do not look um, to the Buddha as a savior, so to speak, but as a, as a teacher, more or less. I almost get the feeling that the, that the premise of my question was a form of that 
that duality that you were referring yes. to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, putting that aside, if I sure. may, um, when one approaches Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, what are some of the things that are learned or are studied anyway? Well, that's an interesting. At our, the Fresno Temple, we're quite large. We have 1,100 members, and we have people that we have a Sunday school that has over 100 children. And when it comes to teaching the Buddhist teachings, there are teachings that, like, for example, there's the Eightfold Path that talks about right conduct, right meditation, and those are ethics. And for the children, uh, it's very difficult for them to try to understand the more abstract concepts of Buddhism. So for the younger people, we tend to focus on those types of teachings, the ethics. And then as they get older, then we try to talk more about what I was talking about with duality and how we interrelate with each other. So it's, it's interesting because Buddhism is a very personal journey. So yes, there are many different schools of Buddhism, and people have different ideas, but the whole thing that's very interesting is that the historical Buddha knew that everybody has their own talents, strengths, and weaknesses, and so that their understanding of the teaching would be very personal. Is there, um, is there a scripture, is there a holy text that you use? Yes, it's interesting, because um, in ancient India, at the time of the Buddha, there was nothing written down, because there was an oral tradition. And then approximately, and then what his different monks or disciples would do is they would memorize certain texts or certain subject matters that the Buddha would talk about. And approximately 200 years after his death, the monks got together and wrote down what is called the Tripitaka, which is the original Buddhist teachings. And so that is considered um, the words of the Buddha, though they were not written by him. And then as Buddhism progressed through time, um, there are many what we call sutras, and those are basically teachings and these, those come from India and went through China into other parts of the world. And so, for example, my school is a Pure Land school, and so our teachings or our understanding of the te- Buddha's teachings are based on those three Pure Land sutras, and there's literally hundreds if not thousands of different of these sutras. Um, on a personal note, Reverend Rai, what drew you to Buddhism? Well, it was interesting. I was uh, teaching English in Japan 20 years ago, and I was impressed by the... Um, when I would go to the temples, I was impressed by what I saw, and so I started studying it, and it was very academic for me. And the one thing that I appreciate about Buddhism, I can look at it um, uh, as an intellectual curiosity. I can look at it as a personal growth. I, in many ways, I feel very comfortable with it. And when I returned to the United States, I was very fortunate to come into the Seattle Temple, the same denomination that we have here in Fresno, and I felt that there was a heart to it. And so I felt a connection with the community, um, which we call Sangha in Buddhism. And so the fellowship was very important to me, and I saw these older people that had a really enriched life. They could not probably sit down and talk to you like I am about Buddhism, but the teachings and living that lifestyle really had them very, a very grounded feeling about them, a very special feeling. One of the things I think of when I hear the word Buddhism is simplicity. Is that uh, an accurate connection? It can be, yes. Uh, in America, a lot of people, their understanding of Buddhism is based on the Zen school, which takes away, like, for example, our altar in our temple is very ornate, where if you went to a, a Zen center, there would be virtually nothing, not even a statue of the Buddha. And so the understanding is that it, it can be very simplistic, yes. Um, it's just like a game of chess. It can be as sophisticated or, or, or unsophisticated as you make it. This is Quality of Life on Valley Public Radio. I'm Terry Phillips. We are talking about uh, religions and belief systems other than the three that we're most familiar with, those being, of course, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And with me on the telephone from the Fresno Buddhist Temple is Reverend Kurt Rye. And Reverend Rye, I want to stray a little bit down that, <laughs> that <laughs> dualistic path okay. again because it, it helps me to, to understand by making distinctions. Mm-hmm. And you were talking before about different denominations of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, is there anything resembling... Um, an ecumenical movement among these different uh, forms of Buddhism? Well, it's interesting at this point, because America is probably the first country in the history of Buddhism that has all the different schools represented. Hmm. And at this point, um, a lot of the schools, right now, for example, here in Fresno, there is a Cambodian group, and the monks do not speak English, and the followers are first-generation Cambodian. So at this point in Buddhism in America, it's interesting, because my denomination is Japanese, and we've been here for over 100 years, so the people that come to our temple are third, fourth, and fifth generation, and obviously we speak English. So there's a literal co- uh, cultural conflict and a language conflict at this time for us to try to get together. Though, though of course, there are things as the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, which are geared more for uh, you know, uh, 
European Americans, so to speak. Uh, is there a ceremony? And if so, can you talk about that? In what sense? Uh, a, 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 what's the term? A worship ceremony? Well, yes. Okay, so for example, you have to remember that um, Buddhism, the, the schools are quite different. So schools that are like in Sri Lanka, where you see the monks in the saffron or orange robes, they are um, basically considered holy people. Those are the ones that are going to reach enlightenment at the end of their, this particular lifetime. And so if you go to one of their services, the monks will be separated from the congregation, and they will be teaching and talking to the uh, lay people. Um, there will actually be a meal provided, and people will go to the monks for guidance, almost like uh, counselors, so to speak. They're very involved in their everyday life in the village in Sri Lanka and these other countries. And even in America, that is the case where um, Sri Lankans who live here will go visit the monks at special times and ask questions. Uh, my denomination is uh, because of the Japanese internment during World War II in the camps, um, there was a movement to make the services, quote-unquote, more Western. And so if you come to our temple, you'd be surprised because we have pews, and it looks very much, would be very familiar to a Christian uh, in the setting and how we do our services. So we have our Sunday service would consist of us starting by doing the ancient chants that are in classical Chinese that are over 800 years old, and the kids will do that as well. But then we'll sing songs in English, then there will be a sermon in English, and, and then the kids actually will be leading the group. So in a way, our service is much more uh, westernized because of the fact of the poor Japanese Americans being interned during World War II. So it, it really varies on what domination you're talking about. One of the other things that I think of uh, when someone mentions the word Buddhism is reincarnation. Is that yes. also a, a um, an accurate um, part of Buddhism? Yes, it is. It definitely is. As many people are aware that the Dalai Lama, which is not our school of Buddhism, it's a different school, is considered to be a literal reincarnation of somebody that had a life previously very close. Reincarnation is probably, you were asking earlier, what the difference between our school and, and the other major schools would be that um, the idea that uh, if that it, people do come back, so it's not like this lifetime this is the one and only opportunity for you to um, become enlightened or go to heaven if you're in the other religions. The idea is that in this lifetime that you've been exposed to the Buddhist teachings, and hopefully through that, then you'll be able to reach enlightenment and not have to go through the cycle of reincarnation. And like I say, the, those ideas in some schools are very literal that this person was this person 200 years ago. Our school tends to look at it more philosophically that, um, you know, this is the opportunity. And um, I'd like to tell the children that our view is more like that, you know, when leaves fall off the tree, they go to the ground and they decompose and then they come back and nourish the tree again. And it's that idea, not necessarily that uh, in 100 years there's going to be another quote-unquote Kurt Rye. And uh, that, that term enlightenment that you've used a few times. Yes. Uh, is, that, um, is that the end of the path? Well, that's, it's very interesting because being enlightened is to see things as they truly are. When we were talking earlier about um, dualism, the idea is that, uh, for example, I think Zen is the clearest example of this, that a Zen monk would come in and he eats his food and he sits down and it's a silent meal and all he is doing is eating. He doesn't have his mind full of other things. He's not thinking this is bad food, this is, you know, how is this prepared? He's simply eating and that's being present in the moment. Um, and so therefore, when he interacts with people, he has a true presence. So. Um, that idea of enlightenment doesn't mean that the person is special. It means that they see things as they are. And it's interesting because in certain traditions you'll be introduced to somebody and this is, you know, um, so-and-so and they are enlightened. Um, and for our school that's a little awkward. We talk more about um, in our school what happens is that with the human state and the human mind there's no way that we cannot think dualistically, that we cannot have our own uh, impressions put upon people because we're human. And so the idea is that upon physical death, then um, we are what we call, you know, we, go, we reach nirvana or we reach enlightenment or in the tradition of our school we say we reach the pure land. So it's a very interesting idea. And in that way, then you're not going back through this life cycle where um, it causes suffering and, and discontentment. So does that mean the end of reincarnation? In a sense. Um, there's many books written on this, and like I said, there's many different interpretations. Some people would say that your, the essence would be carried on. And like we tell the children, you know, like when we do a funeral and the grandparents have passed on, we say that their karma is still with us, their influence is still with us. They're, you know, and so in that sense, that you know, people are never completely gone. Uh, I'm sorry that we waited so long to, uh, to use this word uh, 
karma. It's something that we could spend a long time <laughs> talking about. But in the most simple terms, can you explain that word, please? Sure. So karma is people, it's a very common word in the English-American vocabulary, and karma is also in many other Indian religions, for example, Hinduism, and their understanding is a little different than the Buddhist. And so karma basically is causes and conditions. So if I um, do something, and it can be caused by thoughts, actions, or speech. This is what we teach the children. So um, if you say, you know, in a very simplistic term, if you go up to someone and you get them angry by saying um, something nasty to them, then that is causing bad karma. It's not this um, uh, uh, idea that it's something that comes from somewhere else. We create our own karma. And it's not this internal or uh, the idea like in India with the people that are the untouchables, their karma from the past made them become this way. We don't believe in that. One of the things that's very important for us when we talk to the children is, is that you cannot talk about someone else's karma. It's like the idea of, oh, good karma, bad karma, mm-hmm. a fatalistic idea is not our interpretation. The karma is, is we can talk about our own karma because we have insight to that, but the idea of judging other people by saying, oh, they must have done something wrong, they have, this person is handicapped, that must mean they had bad karma in the last, past lifetime. That's not our understanding, and that is something that can be really misunderstood, I believe. Well, Reverend Rye, I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us a little bit about this uh this fascinating belief system of, of Buddhism. I presume that if uh, people are more interested that they can come to your temple here in Fresno or, or others. Oh, please, yes, yes. And where is the Fresno Buddhist Temple? It's like located at 1340 Kern Street in downtown Old Chinatown, and we do have a website that is fresnobuddhisttemple.org. And my phone number and contact information is on there if anyone's interested. Great. Well, I thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Reverend Kurt Rye of the Fresno Buddhist Temple. This is Quality of Life, and I'll be back with more in just a moment. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious or daft, and you feel that you had quite enough Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour That's orbiting at 90 miles a second So it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day in an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour of the galaxy we call the Milky Way That was Eric Idle and the Galaxy Song from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. This is Quality of Life on Valley Public Radio. I'm Terry Phillips. We are talking about a variety of religious beliefs and philosophies this morning. And with me on the telephone from the Unitarian Universalist Church in Fresno is Amanda Peterson. Good morning and welcome to Quality of Life. Good morning, Terry. Thank you for having me. For those of our listeners who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about Unitarian Universalism? Absolutely. Um, we refer to ourselves as UUs, uh-huh. and um, Unitarian Universalism is a liberal um, religion. It has uh, Judeo-Christian roots. Um, one of the things that makes it unusual um, is that it has no creed. We have seven uh, principles and purposes that as members of the Unitarian Universalist Church, we agree to affirm and promote. And those um, principles are things like Um, honoring the inherent worth and dignity of every person, um, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. So we we have no creed. We agree that as individuals... We are. Um, we honor the everyone's ability to have a free and responsible search for truth and meaning in their own lives. Um, we uh, believe in use of the democratic process within our congregations as well as in society at large, the acceptance and encouragement of one another in spiritual growth, justice and equity and compassion in human relations. Social justice is a strong element of, um, the, of the Unitarian Church and, of course, a, a, the world, a goal of world community. And with peace and liberty and justice for all. And then finally, just respect for the interdependent web um, that we are all a part of, which includes 
you know, living in right relationship with other people in our in our relationships with others, but also honoring um, the earth. And there's an environmental um, strand that kind of runs through that um, that belief that Unitarians have a, that we are a part of the interdependent web, and nothing that we do um, does ha- does not have an impact on on others or on the earth. One of the ways that I've been approaching this subject generally today is by comparing and contrasting these uh, other beliefs with the ones most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim were to walk into a Unitarian Universalist church, what would look familiar and what would be unfamiliar? Um, What might be familiar would be uh, the you know, the arrangement, perhaps, that we have a, a, we don't call it an altar, that the chancel and the, the minister or the lay leader is there, the choir or musicians may be up in the front and people would, are seated around um, facing that direction. The um, things that might be different would be, um, there's, depending on the Unitarian, the local Unitarian congregation, there might be more or less use of uh, real spiritual terms or um, references to deities. Um, you know, often um, in, in the closing of a, of a prayer or of, of a kind of, of a statement of, of worship, our minister uses, you know, says, so, uh, so be it, blessed be. Um, and usually we're not um, praying to God, per se. In our congregations, um, people who identify themselves as Christians or Jews um, or atheists are all there in the same cir- circle, um, just united by the, um, those principles. So there isn't a, a, uh, necessarily a common belief in a deity or in let me ask you this: Is there a is there a text? Is there a scripture that uh, enters into uh, the uh, into the UU Church? Well, you know, we draw from many sources. Um, certainly, from just direct experience of just um, particularly um, in the natural world um, that moves us um, to feel renewed. Words and deeds of prophetic men and women from all. Um, religious backgrounds um, and and various religious texts during a uh, a worship service at the Unitarian Church in Fresno, for example, um, there may be a Bible story or something from the Torah or um, you know a Hindu poem or um, you know all kinds of uh, religious texts as well as uh, more secular um, kinds of um, authors are drawn upon for as a source of inspiration or as models of, of right relationship, of, of the adherence of the, the principles that we strive to um, to live by. I have some friends who are uh, – yeah, I'm struggling a little bit with, with the terminology. They, they call themselves um, – some, some of them call themselves uh, Unitarians. Is that an archaic term or a limiting term or is, or is that shorthand for – Shorthand because Unitarian Universalist uh, yeah. <laughs> multisyllabic, right. um, and so the Unitarian Church um, and the Universalist Church existed. Um, both of them started in Europe hundreds of years ago, and um, in 1961, the Unitarian Church and the Universalist Church consolidated and formed a new religion of Unitarian Universalism. So, do the distinct components still exist separately in the world, or is this, or is this universally? now one um, group? You know, it, it varies regionally. The Unitarian Universalist Association um, com- has over, over just over a thousand congregations um, around the world. Um, and it is interesting, one of the things about Unitarian Universalism that is very interesting is that, you know, different from perhaps some of the, the religions that you mentioned previously, you know, were you to attend a Catholic service in anywhere in the world, it's almost the same. Even if the language is different, you, mm-hmm. you know what, what's happening. And in a Unitarian Universalist church, the local congregation um, really has a distinctive stamp on the, the flavor, if you will, of um, what actually happens in a worship service. And so some uh, churches may have maybe more um, 
overtly spiritual, um, some may be more mystical, some may be more um, earth-centered, some may be more humanist-centered. And so there is a, a considerable variety as far as what the actual Sunday service uh, looks like, um, but the, the common factor is um, the, the principles and purposes, a, a covenant that love is the doctrine of our church. Um, and we talk about service being the prayer, and so it goes back to that social justice emphasis in our congregations. This is Quality of Life on Valley Public Radio. I'm Terry Phillips. We are talking today about religions and belief systems other than the three that most people are familiar with, the three uh, major monotheistic religions. And with me on the telephone from the Fresno Unitarian Universalist Church is Amanda Peterson. She's the president of the Board of Trustees there. And let me ask you about what happens on a Sunday. A friend of mine once told me that while the Christians use a cross as their symbol, that Unitarians, I'm sure she was kidding, she said that Unitarians use a question mark. <laughs> that is a common uh, a common Unitarian uh, joke that we, that we have around ourselves, because people do, it can be puzzling, um, how is it that you, that that individuals in a congregation may identify as a Christian or a pagan or as an atheist, and yet you can all come together. And, you know, ultimately the, um, the community that we um, have, uh, you know, building a, a, a loving community, tr- living in right relationship with one another, and we share these ideals of, um, and we strive to live up to these principles of honoring the inherent worth of every person. And, um, you know, working toward a world community of peace. And so that's what unites us. And so during a Sunday service, um, generally we have, you know, we have some music, two or three songs like you might see. Um, some come from a uh, Songs of the Living Tradition, the Unitarian Universalist Hymnal. Some come, some are um, popular music or folk music might be used during a service. Um, there usually are um, two or three readings that may, again, as I said, draw from those sources. It could be a spiritual or sacred text. It could be um, uh, actually one of our readings, um, re- one of our church services recently that was uh, conducted by the, the junior youth group. One of the readings was um, an article about Julia um, Butterfly um, Hill, who had lived in the uh, the um, redwood tree for years to save that ancient redwood, and it was a, a reading an article of what she said about why she did that, and that was one of the readings. So, And then usually the minister, if he's um, uh, present on the Sunday, or a lay leader will um, provide the, um, you know, the, the, the key um, sermon or, or, dis, or talk, and then, um, you know, there's closing. And, um, and so it's that, in that sense, it's about an hour, and it follows a sort of that similar, you know, Christian path. So someone who came from a Christian background would see there's a, an opening. There's not an entrance procession or anything like that. Um, and our symbol that we do have is a flaming chalice. Um, and in the unit in the church in Fresno, we have a very large uh, sculpture of a, fla- of a chalice um, with a flame on the wall. And that's um, the image. There's no single interpretation of the chalice that um, all Unitarian churches use, but it came to be the symbol of Unitarian Universalism during World War II. Let me ask you the same question I asked my first guest, which is, what drew you to this belief? I um, came to this belief. I had I had been raised in a, in a, um, in a different faith tradition, and I found that there were elements of the doctrine of that tradition that were not true for me, and I was struggling with that, and I was seeking um, some, uh, I was seeking a community for my family, um, a place to, um, to help me with my, raise my son to be a, an ethical and moral person, and I um, came to Unitarian Universalism because it is a free faith, and it is um, an the, the the principles, you know, push me to to be the person I want to become. And when I go to church on Sunday, and when I listen to um, Brian Jessup, our, our minister, speak, um, he you know he reminds me of who I want to be. And he and I am in community. I am pushed to 
to honor the inherent worth of every person, which is difficult many, many times, and to honor my own worth and to um, really be mindful of what I, the gifts and um, opportunities that I have, and to be reminded that I have a role in making a difference in the lives of others. One of the words that's used as shorthand for religion is the word creed, but I was intrigued at the beginning of our conversation that you said that uh, Unitarian Universalism has no creed. That's correct. Uh, is that really true? There's no, there's no um, uh, system of beliefs to which you all subscribe? What we subscribe to are um, we covenant, we agree um, that we affirm and promote those seven principles. And and that is, um, but that's different close, than a that's different than a creed. It is okay. because I mean, in a sense, we we you know we don't make a statement of we believe that X Y and Z are true, uh-huh. um, and so in that sense, we do we do not have a creed. And what unites us is our um, our agreement that these ideals of the right of conscience, of the use of the democratic process, of the respect. For the independent web, um, those are the ideals that we all that we strive to live. And in community, we can be, um, we can learn from one another, and we can be supported, and we can be held. Um, we hold each other accountable for being the best person that we can be um, in line with these with these goals. It's a it's a little hard to grasp. I think the idea that you you it's not that you believe in nothing. You just don't <laughs> all believe in the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Is there is there a um, uh, I presume there's that that just as there's no common uh, creed that also means there's no common point of view about things like heaven and hell and an afterlife. Is that right? Correct. Um, and we have an annual uh, children's summer camp for for a week, and um, one of the um, elements of that. Um, uh, you know, te- teaching the children about the seven principles in a in a language that is more um, accessible to them. Um, one of the um, elements of that camp is about what do I know about God? Mm-hmm. And I, I recall when my own son was in the program, they had puzzle pieces, and they each had to write on this puzzle piece what they thought, who, what did they think of God. And I recall that my son, when, when he was young, said to the instructor, well, I don't believe in God. I don't think there is a God. And she said, well, you need to write that down. Because if we put the puzzle together and your piece is not there, what, 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 what will the puzzle look like? And he said, well, there'll be a hole. And she said, yeah, the puzzle will be incomplete. Um, and the idea of that, of that exercise was telling the children that what you know about God is a piece of the truth. And for him, what he knew was that he didn't think there was God, and that was a, that's a piece of the truth. That was what she was um, teaching them that they to, to search that uh, that search that individual search for truth and meaning. Well, I'm I'm delighted to be able to talk with you about this subject today and about about uh, the uni- Unitarian Universalist Church. You you certainly is a lot easier to say. <laughs> Amanda Peterson, thank you very much for being with me today on Quality of Life. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. That is Amanda Peterson, the president of the Board of Trustees of the Unitarian Universalist Church in Fresno. This is Quality of Life, and we will continue with more of the program in a moment. Support for Quality of Life comes from Chevron Corporation and Comcast. That was Spirit in the Sky, written and recorded by Norman Greenbaum. It was a big hit back in the late 60s. This is Quality of Life on Valley Public Radio. I'm Terry Phillips. Today we're talking about religions and belief systems other than the three major monotheistic religions that everybody knows about. 
And with me on the telephone, the president and co-founder of the Central Valley Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics, also known as CVAS, Mark Boyd. Good morning and welcome to Quality of Life. Thank you very much for having me. And Mark, I guess I should start with the most obvious question right off. What is an atheist? Well, at the very basic level, an atheist uh, is defined as someone who um, is not a theist, who does not have a belief in a deity. Um, that's a, it's a very wide label. It covers a lot of different people, and it really doesn't say anything else about them other than the fact that they don't believe in a deity. Now, I want to play a little bit of a word game here, but not a game, because I really want to understand, is an atheist someone who does not believe in God or who believes there is no God? Ah, uh, well, this is a very interesting thing that uh, we run into ourselves. Uh, the best way to answer that is to ask the person who is uh, self-labeling himself. Uh, but... Uh, in more general terms, you could say that there is a difference between strong atheism and weak atheism, hmm. where a st strong atheist would say that he disbelieves in God, and a weak atheist might say that he has no belief in God and is merely waiting for evidence. But uh, while he's waiting, he's not going to act as if there is a, a God or deity. And where do you fit in all of this, if I may ask? Um, I, I consider myself um, both an atheist um, and, in a way, an agnostic. I'm, I am uh, waiting for evidence. Um, I also um, kind of think that the whole question of uh, deity is a kind of a silly question to ask, in a way, um, because if it is uh, purely supernatural in origin and ability, then it really has no effect on our real life. There's actually a term for that. They call it an ignostic. Ignostic. I've never heard that before. That's interesting. Right. It means that uh, that uh, in the ignostic uh, um, tradition, the whole question of whether or not there is a God is a silly question and not one worth our attention. And yet it is a subject that has uh, held the attention of our species for millennia. We we define ourselves, we group ourselves, we fight among ourselves, and we uh, bond together over this question of what we believe specifically about uh, a deity. And isn't that interesting that we have so many different ideas of what deity is, and that these different ideas, even in the uh, Christian tradition, for example, uh, Catholics versus Protestant, uh, these ideas are so great that they can cause wars that last hundreds of years. It's almost as if no one really has a good idea of what a deity is, and they're all kind of making it up as they go along. Now, your organization, CVAS, is uh, about atheism and skepticism. Can you talk a little bit about the latter? Well, the uh, modern tradition of skepticism is the idea of uh, using um, rational thought, um, scientific processes, and logic to understand the world that we're in. Um, for as long as humans have existed, the best method that we have ever come upon for learning about how the universe works, how nature works, is the scientific method. And uh, the, the process of the scientific method is the only thing that has reliably added uh, new information to the sum of human knowledge. Uh, this whole idea of uh, skepticism is to um, require evidence for claims um, and to use the uh, null hypothesis idea whenever you're starting um, uh, a claim. In other words, um, you need to start from a, a position of not knowing before and then and then uh, figure out if the claims made make sense so is is this this um, process of questioning uh, what is at the heart of of your personal belief system 
Well, my personal belief system, yes. Um, I question quite a lot of things. Um, I, I'm human, and of course some things I take for granted. Whenever I catch myself doing that, I tend to uh, flip the, the idea on its head and, and ask why I take something for granted. So there's also a, 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 a process of self-discovery in this, too. One of the highest principles espoused in um, Christianity, for sure, and I, I think in Judaism and in Islam, is the the value of faith, believing something without knowing something. How do you respond to that as a principle? Well, this is a, an interesting thing. Um, if a adherent tells me that they believe through faith alone, well, that's great. That they they win the argument. I can't touch that. Um, faith is uh, knowing without evidence. Great. So, but it doesn't really say anything. As soon as they come up to a point where they say, "Well, um, um, there was a flood, or there was a, a man who has been risen from the dead, or anything like that," that's where we can say, "Great, I want to see the evidence." There are those who say they believe. Uh, certain things in the in the realm of religion because of a feeling or a spiritual experience they have. How do you respond to to them? Well, that's very interesting, and it's one of the the problems that I had. Um, I was um, I came out of Christianity into atheism. Um, I was a Christian for close to twenty years, and uh, as a Christian, I had experienced the Holy Spirit. Um, this was a, a huge problem for me, because even after I came to the point where I no longer believed in the Bible and I really had doubts about God, I had to question this thing about the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until um, something that was mentioned by uh, the author Sam Harris. He mentioned something about uh, atheist mysticism, um, where people who have experienced meditation or sweat lodges or what have you have come up with this feeling of transcendence or love or acceptance. And this is really interesting because so many different traditions have felt this, whether it be Buddhist nirvana or uh, Indians in a sweat lodge or uh, uh, Christians or uh, even Islam. Um, and the, the, the question that comes to mind is, are these people all feeling the same God, or is it all coming from the same place? And the answer that I came to was that it was coming from the same place. It was coming from inside our heads. We know very well that we can use our minds to influence our bodies, and we can use um, our bodies to influence our minds. Depression is a very good example of both of these. Um, as is drugs. You know, if you are high and seeing visions of pink elephants, you don't believe that they're real. Well, you might you at the time. You might at the time. And someone not un under the influence of that drug uh, or that depression, whatever it is, m would see it differently. I guess the, the question that this begs is um, – can we? It's it's the most fundamental question there is, I guess. Can we know? Can we know anything? Well, um, can we know if what we are experiencing is real or not? Is right. not a question I think that is unanswerable. Um, neurology has been making uh, great strides lately. Uh, people have been put into uh, cat, cat scan machines to see what they, their minds are doing whenever they're experience, experiencing religious ecstasy. And we do see a change in the, uh, the brain during these experiences. Um, is this a physical change that the mind is influencing the brain in some sort of a feedback cycle? We don't know yet. And this is the nice thing about science. Science will gladly answer, we don't know yet, and then continue looking for evidence. And a theist might say, this is evidence of God. Well, that's true. However, whenever he says that this is positive evidence of God, then we're going to want um, um, 
a greater standard at this point. Um, whenever you you make a claim, the uh, the greater your claim, the more evidence is required to make you to affirm your claim. Um, a good example is um, Darwin on evolution. He had to create uh, 20 years worth of evidence and and condense that down to a, a large book to show that his claim was valid because his claim was so outlandish for that time. And since then, we have had 150 years worth of additional confirming evidence of evolution that has again and again and again from many different disciplines confirmed it. So whenever someone makes a really uh, difficult claim, they need a higher standard of evidence. And showing that there are changes in the brain with religious ecstasy shows that there are changes in the brain with religious ecstasy. It does not show that there is proof of God. This is Quality of Life on Valley Public Radio. I'm Terry Phillips, and we are talking today about various belief systems. We've been talking about Buddhism, and we've been talking about uh, Unitarian Universalism. And with me on the telephone now from the Central Valley Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics is their president and co-founder, Mark Boyd. And Mark, uh, speaking of religion and of God, um, I want to play a little bit of a of a routine that um, one of my favorite comedians, George Carlin, did, and uh, it's about God and it's about religion. Let's take a quick listen to this. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he does not want you to do. And if you do any of these ten things, he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time. But he loves you. That's the late comedian George Carlin speaking about religion and God. And uh, Mark Boyd, the... uh, the audience there obviously loved what he was saying, but some people might have, and certainly did, not just might have, um, some people took offense at that. They felt he was mocking their beliefs and that he was insulting how they felt. Do you ever run into that simply by telling people that you're an atheist? That- well, well, yes, and, and this, is, this is a huge problem um, everywhere. Um, Atheists recently have been um, coming out of the closet, so to speak, letting people know that they exist. Um, whenever um, uh, one atheistic author went into a city and gave a, a book talk, uh, uh, several atheists came forward and, and said that they thought they were the only atheists in the entire city because they didn't know of any others. We realize that this is a problem, and we try to let other atheists know that we're here, that that you're not alone. This is a very comforting thought. And so one of the campaigns that has been happening around the nation is the Atheist Billboard Campaign, where um, a local atheist group will pay to have a billboard put up. And it usually says something like, um, if you don't believe in God, you're not alone. Well, there was one that was that was put up down in South California that said exactly that, and uh, the 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 locals had it taken down as being offensive. It became it it was offensive to them to know that um, some people didn't believe as they did. There's a member of Congress. I don't know if he's the only member of Congress. I think he's the only one who has said so publicly uh, that that he's an atheist. And I'm referring Pete to Stark. right Pete Stark up in uh, in the Bay Area. Um, it, I imagine it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to run for public office uh, in the Central Valley and maybe in most places in America, uh, and and to say, among other things, that uh, you were an atheist. Right. Surveys done have shown that um, at best 47% of the population would would uh, um, think that atheists, a, a well-qualified atheist, could run for office. Um, and there is still in uh, the books of, I think it's six or seven different states where 
um, atheism uh, automatically disqualifies someone to run for governor of those states. If it wasn't for the 14th Amendment, those laws would still be uh, applicable in those states. Do you take offense, or or maybe I should ask a, a broader question, not you personally, but do you, do you think atheists take offense at uh, the appearance of, of um, the word God, for example, in money or in other uh, public uh, applications? In in broad terms, we don't take offense in people who who wish to celebrate their own religion. Um, what bothers us is whenever the government appears to be less than neutral toward religion. Um, the government isn't supposed to establish a religion, and this means that uh, they need they they need not favor a religion, and they should be neutral toward a religion. Whenever you have something like "In God We Trust" on our money, you're excluding the portion of the population who doesn't believe in your God or or in a God, or those people who might be uh, pantheists who believe in more than one God. I don't see what's wrong with our original motto, the "E Pluribus Unum." I believe I'm pronouncing that right, mm-hmm. which means uh, "Out of many, one." Um, this is a nice model. This is one that says we're all in this together. Out of all of us, we come up with one nation. It's just like Ben Franklin said, we, will, we should all hang together or we'll surely hang separately. And this is indicative of the entire attitude that uh, the dominant religion has in this country. Um, we're, if you talk to um, the Christian evangelicals, um, you get this protest that they're not being discriminatory. They're just, you know, um, doing their own thing, and we can do our own thing too, but their thing gets put on money. I want you to respond to one of the most famous cliches about atheism, the one that says there are no atheists in foxholes. Oh, I would love to respond to that. Two, two things. First off, I'm a vet. I'm a veteran. Uh, Ten years, seven months in the Air Force. Uh, second thing would be the Military Association of Atheists and Freethinkers. Uh, these are people who are in Iraq and Afghanistan right now who are atheists. But what about the fear factor? Do you think that, that when, when one faces one's mortality that, it's, um, that it changes things? Well, it does. I mean – it's very difficult for a human to think about a time whenever he's not going to be here anymore. Um, but at the same time, some of this fear is allevi- alleviated when you realize that there has been a billion years or more where you weren't around, you know, before this. You didn't miss not being here before you were here. After you're gone, you won't miss it either. But, you know, a lot of people take comfort from religion. You mentioned before um, the uh, you're not alone if, you, if uh, you're an atheist. But a lot of people feel that uh, they're not alone because there is something transcendent. Uh, there's a God or there's something else out there besides this. Do you, do you reject that? No, I don't reject that. Um, people take comfort in all sorts of things. Um, in... And God can be very comforting for those who believe in it. But if you get to a point where you're no longer able to believe in it because it no longer makes sense to you, it, it, it isn't reasonable or logical, um, if you start uh, questioning the morality of the Bible, um, and there are a lot of points to question in it, um, whenever you get to that point, um, then you start realizing that uh, perhaps discomfort you're feeling from um, a, a deity isn't, isn't helping. Or there are, it's even better in that uh, a lot of self-professed Christians, if you were to have them describe what is giving them this comfort, they wouldn't be describing the, the God from the Bible to you. They would be describing some sort of um, cafeteria Christian God that uh, makes them feel good. 
Well, Mark, I appreciate you talking about this uh, this fascinating subject, and uh, I, I want to leave you uh, just with one question. If people want to know more, where where would you encourage them to to go? Okay, the um, uh, our group, the Central Valley Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics. Uh, you can find us online at www.cvaas.org. Um, and you can also uh, call us on the phone at uh, 559-892-0102. Um, we're affiliated with a couple of national organizations, and there are a lot of local organizations in California and a few of them in the Central Valley that we would help uh, direct people to. All right. Well, I thank you very much again for being with us this morning on Quality of Life. Thank you so much for having me. I very much appreciate this. Mark Boyd is president and co-founder of CVAS, the Central Valley Alliance of Atheists and Skeptics. I'm Terry Phillips, and I'll be back in just a moment with a final comment. Hi, God here. So I was all set to destroy the world when I thought, hey, I'm not that kind of God. If just one soul could show me it's worth saving, I'd spare it. And being a sporting deity, I let the devil choose. So folks, meet your last chance for salvation. Wow. This is good beer. Oh, boy. Well, folks, I wouldn't make any long-term plans. That's theme music from the animated TV series God, the Devil, and Bob, starring Alan Cumming, James Garner, and French Stewart. Today we've been talking about some belief systems that are less familiar than the three major monotheistic religions, at least here in America. I always find it interesting to hear people speak about the unknown. That's what draws me to journalism. It's a profession that seeks to transform ignorance into knowledge. Every day we take a blank page and try to fill it with facts. That's why I love this radio program so much. It gives me a chance to learn something all the time. Whether it's about politics, science, art, or anything else, I am constantly reminded of how little I know, and the longer I live, the more I want to learn. The great lawyer Clarence Darrow once said, I do not consider it an insult, but rather a compliment to be called an agnostic. I do not pretend to know where many ignorant men are sure. That is all that agnosticism means. One of the most difficult things for most people to admit is that they don't know something, especially something as important as the meaning of life. Many folks simply accept traditional views and use words like God or spirit or karma. The difficulty comes in explaining those words. From time to time, I am asked if I believe in God. My answer is always the same. What do you mean by God? I don't say this to criticize anyone's faith, I just want to understand the words we use when we talk about such important matters. As for the meaning of life, here's one more bit of music. Some things in life are bad, they can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. This'll help things turn out for the best And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing when you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. Ain't always look on the bright side of life. That's Eric Idle in a song from Monty Python's Meaning of Life and the musical Spamalot, one of my favorite stage shows. I want to thank today's guests and thank you for listening. Next time on Quality of Life, we revisit the important topic of water management. All of us here look forward to hearing what you think. Please send email to talk at kvpr.org or regular mail to 3437 West Shaw Avenue, Suite 101, Fresno, California, 93711. 
As always, you can listen to any Quality of Life program online or by subscribing to our free podcast. Just visit kvpr.org. My thanks to production manager Don Weaver, audio engineer Marv Allen, producer Mark Thomas, and executive producer Jim Myers. And until next time, I'm Terry Phillips reminding you, it's not only the quantity that counts, it's the quality of life. Support for Quality of Life comes from the James Irvine Foundation, Kaiser Permanente, and the California Healthcare Foundation, ideas and innovations to improve healthcare for all Californians, on the web at chcf.org.